Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. This episode is brought to you by Hunt Hickory Creek. And new to Hunt Hickory Creek this year is their Central Kansas Lodge. They're going to be running hunters from the end of October all the way through January. And their main hunting area is located between Kavira National Refuge and Cheyenne Bottoms. Central Kansas is a special place for waterfowl hunting. And during the peak migration, those refuges hold hundreds of thousands, if not close to millions of ducks and geese at a time. Mainly speckle belly, snow, and lesser Canada geese, mallards, pintails, and widgeon. You may have an opportunity to harvest all of these species in one hunt. You'll be very comfortable every morning in their Avian X A-frame blinds or laying on backboards, and they hunt over 1,200 of the industry's finest decoys. So visit their website at www.hunthickorycreek.com for booking information and follow them throughout the year on Facebook and Instagram. And don't miss your opportunity at a hunt of a lifetime with Hunt Hickory Creek. If you're going to hunt Kansas, hunt Hickory Creek. Welcome to the Fowl Front Outdoors Waterfowl Podcast, where our goal is to recruit and educate new hunters while entertaining the rest of you. Without new hunters and the mentorship of those more seasoned, this passion as we know it faces an uncertain future. So get the word out, turn the volume up, and enjoy the show, because you're on the Fowl Front. This episode is also brought to you by Grip Pack Calls. If you want to produce a more versatile, realistic, and higher quality sound with all the ease of a double read, whether you're looking to up your game or just starting out. Let a Grip Pack call work just as hard for you as the Grip Pack crew did to develop and bring you next level quality with easy blowing calls. Grip Pack calls. Find your grit. This episode is also supported by Goose Ninja Call Lanyards, MDR Custom Woodworks, Twisted Wire Upland Hunts out of Grand Island, Nebraska. And from our friends over at High Prairie Sportsman 
over on YouTube. All right, guys, this is Tegan here. I'm going to be taking over a little bit this week, not too much. Uh, Ben's going to be my wingman for a change. And uh, this week on the show, we're speaking with Brian Moyes, the regional director of Delta Waterfowl in Illinois and Indiana. Brian, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Can't complain, can't complain. It's been a little cooler down here than it was the past couple weeks, so that's nice. I'm not sweating my buns off as much at work, so... How is it in your neck of the woods? We've we've had a pretty good streak of hot weather as well, and now it seems like uh, we've had quite a bit of rain last week or so with more uh, being forecasted, so we should have uh, ample water for this fall. Yeah, I saw on your Facebook page that there's a little bit of flooding going on down your way. Yeah, there has been quite a bit of flooding, and a lot of the uh, temporary seasonal wetlands around this particular area are overflowing, if you will. We almost have too much water right now. Yeah, well, hopefully those uh, get drawn down a little bit, and hopefully it doesn't mess up any later season nesting with any local birds you got up in that area. Yeah, exactly. Especially, you know, you are going to start seeing, you know, some of the, you know, the ducks starting to nest, you know, have their second broods or, you know, ones that weren't successful on the first try, you know, uh, re-nesting. So, yeah, hopefully that won't uh, negatively impact, you know, the local uh, waterfowl production. Now, is that the primary concern with, um, like, over-flooding um, in, in the summer? Is the nesting habitat? Well, ducks are pretty versatile, especially, you know, the mallards around this this area. So, you know, if anything, we may be actually enhancing a little bit as, you know, some of the upland, you know, areas are putting, putting some more water on. I guess, you know, too much if we get massive flooding, obviously, we could wipe out some nests. But I think we're in pretty good shape right now. We haven't had widespread massive flooding, so... I think I'd rather have ample amount of water than, you know, what some of the areas are experiencing with, you know, uh, very, very dry weather. Right. I, I always thought summer water was good. <laughs> so. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, just, you know, to a certain extent, as long as we don't have massive flooding, I think we'll be okay in this area. We, uh, we definitely could use some more water down this way. Uh, the wildlife area I'm working at this summer, I mean, our marshes, boy, they are dry. Oh, no kidding. Uh you know, there's some areas I know, you know, some of the prime nesting areas, um, you know, for, for puddle ducks in the Missouri Coteau area, that they're still, still a little bit on the dry side. Uh, there are areas throughout, you know, southeast North Dakota and South Dakota actually looks pretty good right now as well, but I know there's some areas in North Dakota where they're still hoping they get some more rain. Uh, for those, you know, late, you know, late season nesting birds. For sure, for sure. Well, hey, first question I wanted to ask you, Brian, is how did you get involved in the outdoors? And you know, particularly waterfowl hunting, but sometimes that's not everyone's first experience. So, you know, any way it happened, uh, you know, what was your first experience? Yeah, uh, you know, it's funny. My my father really didn't waterfowl hunt. He was more of a deer hunter and fisherman. So I grew up, you know, doing quite a bit of fishing. I grew up on the St. Lawrence River in upstate New York, and I guess I'd always been fascinated, uh, you know, from a young kid, you know, with uh, waterfowl in general. But I had quite a few friends and, um, you know, local friends that, 
did quite a bit of waterfowl hunting, so, you know, I got involved with it. Uh, I think I was 12 years old when I, when I first started duck hunting up there, and, uh, yeah, it was quite, a, quite an experience, uh, and, you know, just growing up in the area of such a rich, you know, waterfowling history and, and so on, uh, I was immediately hooked, and now it's, you know, kind of taken over, if you will, every every facet of my life. <laughs> I hear you there. That's <laughs> I always say that anything in my life, uh, you know, I wouldn't say I'm revolved around waterfowl, but I'm revolved around waterfowl. <laughs> Schoolwork and hobbies. Yeah, very central tenant. Yeah. Well, hey, Brian, how did you uh, how did you get hooked up with Delta Waterfowl? And you know, go ahead and kind of explain your job what is it exactly you know as the regional director for illinois and indiana what exactly does that entail okay well i started with delta waterfall in mid-january of this year so i'm fairly new to the organization as far as working for them but i've had uh you know experience as a volunteer and a member for quite some time with delta waterfall and known quite a bit about what they do as an organization so primarily with my job, um, I work with, uh, you know, chapters throughout both Illinois and Indiana, not only from a fundraising perspective, but also with some of their projects they, they can do. Uh, Delta is a little different than some of the other waterfowl conservation organizations, whereas with Delta Waterfowl, the chapters actually retain a portion of their proceeds from their annual banquets. And then they can utilize those funds for various projects, such as, you know, nest structures, which are wood duck boxes, hen tubes, nesting tubes, uh, youth hunts, youth field days, you know, for kids, educational field days, whatnot. So there's quite a bit that the chapter can do to not only ensure, um, you know, the future of waterfowling, but also what they can do is they can do a lot to impact the local community and their local areas as well. So that really interests me, you know, when I, when I was deciding, you know, to move forward with Delta Waterfall as a career, a full-time career, but also it gives me a lot of variety uh, in my day-to-day job. Also work with, you know, on local issues and whatnot with some of the, you know, state wildlife areas and whatnot. We're trying to enhance hunting opportunities for the duck hunter, uh, such as blind building on some of the state grounds, uh, better habitat on those particular state grounds, you know, obviously to attract and retain, you know, ducks during the season. Plus, you know, when they're on the way back in the spring, you know, ensure that they have, you know, good resting areas and, and uh, you know, abundant food for them on the way back, you know, to the breeding grounds and whatnot. So, you know, there's there's fundraising, obviously, is a big part of my job, but having a local voice for the duck hunter and working with those particular projects that the, the chapter really gets to decide what's important to them to work on a local level. So I have quite a bit of variety in my job, and it's it's really exciting to work with the volunteers from both of these states, and uh, it's 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 a very time-consuming job, but, I mean, the days just fly by when you're doing something that you really love. Yeah, well, that's awesome. I mean, it's good to hear that what you're doing is something that you do love. You know, I'm sure that reflects in your work as well, and, uh, you know, I guess that's one thing. I mean, 
you're right. That has a lot of variety with your work. And I'm going to backpedal here a little bit to one of the first things you said uh, with you guys get to keep a little bit of those funds for your local chapters. And, you know, I think that's awesome because, you know, one of the questions you hear a lot of people ask with, you know, other conservation programs uh, is, you know, where does my money go towards or what is it doing? And so I think that's really cool that your local chapters, you guys get to see some of that stuff happening and maybe gives you a little bit more incentive uh, to keep donating and keep volunteering because you see an ending goal or you see those wood duck boxes being built. Uh, I think that you know probably drives you a little bit more even to work with them. It really does. I mean, I'm you know I'm 47 now. My son uh, has graduated from college. You know, so my wife and I are empty nesters. And you know, I've kind of gotten to the point in my life where you know I'm really starting to think about the future. You know, the future generations and really trying to help ensure that not only they're going to be ducks. You know. Um, in the air, but also that they're going to have ample opportunities to hunt. And, you know, kids today, I think they're pulled in so many different directions with sports. Uh, schoolwork is more demanding. Uh, you see kids, you know, they get, you know, pretty wrapped up in social media and electronics and whatnot. So it's, there's still a lot of kids out there that want to get involved in the outdoors. And I think, you know, as we've seen over the, you know, the years of declining numbers of duck hunters, I think it's even more important that, you know, we get out there and we do what we can to ensure that those kids that really have a desire to get out in the outdoors, you know, not only hunting but fishing and bird watching and whatnot, um, you know, that we really give them some of those opportunities to do that. So, you know, it's 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 great working with these these local chapters. You know, because they're all in the same you know mindset, if you will. You know, they're all about you know trying to get the youth out outdoors, uh, get them out in the duck blind. Uh, you know, and give them those opportunities. So, I think in today's day and age, it's even more important. Obviously, you know, private lands uh, may be more difficult to get on. So. You know, we really need to do what we can to ensure that there's a future for waterfowl hunting. Yeah, I liked what you said, um, you know, about kids and the, the social media and stuff. I, I've got a 12-week-old right now, and my greatest fear is that you know, for her 10th birthday or her 12th birthday, in, instead of wanting a, a, a shotgun or wanting to, you know, get her own set of decoys or something like that, that she's going to want like a Game Boy or an iPad or or, or something like that, and you know, uh, and I think it's super important. Uh, now, I noticed uh, on your Facebook page here, you recently had a really cool youth day in Indiana, uh, building wood duck boxes um, and stuff. And one of the the main goals of the Fowl Front is gonna is, is to educate new hunters and youth. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about your role in mentoring youth, um, and maybe give us some advice uh, in introducing youth into waterfowl? I know. Not you know maybe perhaps next summer or the summer after that we're we're hoping to do kind of an after school um, you know once the school gets out do like a little camp around here to um, maybe get you know hunters ed and then help them learn about all the different types of hunting and kind of you know a little after school program but do you have any advice moving forward for us? Yeah, well I think you know one of the things that 
you know, I'm fortunate as a regional director within Illinois and Indiana as I have so many dedicated volunteers that are committed to that as well, you know, providing opportunities, you know, for the kids to get outdoors. And, you know, I'm, I'm here, you know, in a way to assist them, you know, into achieving those goals and whatnot, you know, kind of facilitating that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, like with, uh, as a particular example, I know this chapter, uh, utilized their local high school, you know, and they, and their shop classes and they were actually building these wood duck boxes. And from there, it really expanded to the point where some of those kids in the shop class kind of wanted to see the efforts of their work. And they hadn't really perhaps had an interest in ducks and waterfowling. Um, but from that, you know, if you will. So it kind of took off from there where more kids got involved with it. And I think, you know, a lot of times when you're when you're working in a local community, and these chapters, these Delta chapters that have been around for a number of years now, they've kind of known as the, you know, the people to go to when, um, you know, a kid does present with, um, you know, the interest to get outdoors and to do something. And, you know, the nice thing is about, you know, waterfowling and, you know, we're, we're lucky. We're a small, tight-knit community of waterfowl hunters, but, you know, the majority of waterfowl hunters out there are really dedicated to, you know, not only the conservation of the waterfowl, but, you know, getting future generations involved as well. So I think when they see um, someone, you know, a younger, you know, uh, person that, you know, has that interest is getting them outdoors. And it's just not during, you know, waterfowl season itself. I think we all think of it as, you know, uh, you know, getting out in the fall. I mean, all of us enjoy getting out in the blind in the fall, but there's so many more things. So you mentioned like the wood duck box program that we're getting kids out for. Uh, one of the things that we're doing during the summertime is, you know, at some of these youth events, we're teaching kids how to call, giving them an introduction, the duck calling, if you will. And the Delta chapters are giving them, you know, the Delta youth duck calls. And, you know, we're teaching them how to set decoys. And kids have this natural curiosity, and they really like to participate in it and learn. So it's, uh, you know, you get one of those kids involved in it, and then all of a sudden, you know, hey, I have a friend. Or they go to school, and they're telling, you know, their buddies about it or their friends at school. And then all of a sudden, it really takes off. So, right. you know, I think from any, you know, conservation organization or any group of, you know, waterfowlers that are trying to do a youth day, you know, it's stick with it. You know, get out there. Try to get the word out on what you're trying to accomplish uh, with the kids and the youth education days and whatnot. And, uh, you know, if you, you, if you, you do it year after year, we've seen this growth, this natural growth in these areas with, with those youth events. Um, I have some chapters that have been doing it now, you know, for six or eight years plus, and every year it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So, you know, it's, it, it's rewarding to see, you know, the, the, the work, you know, um, being rewarded, um, you know, if you will, by the success of these events. So 
I guess, you know, for starting out a youth event, you know, you really want to go and uh, let people know about it, let the community know what you're trying to do, and, you know, local chapters of various conservation organizations and whatnot, and that's great what you guys are doing, and I wish you all the luck with it. Yeah, I think it's important to, um, for any parents out there that have a kid that are, are going to a youth day, um, you know, a lot of times at these youth days, I see kids that come from hunting families. Um, and I think that if you're going to take your, your kid to one of these youth days, um, I, I think you should reach out to one of your, your kid's friend's parents and say, hey, you know, a little tyke is going to, um, you know, waterfowl youth day. Um, would your, you know, son or daughter be interested in joining him? You know, one of those things because, you know, unfortunately kids. Sure. I, I, think, I think that's a great point or even ask your son or daughter you know, uh, hey, do you have any friends that you think would like to come with you as well? And a lot of times, you know, the kids know, you know, people that have an interest in the outdoors and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, you're right. I think, you know, just getting the word out like that and, you know, having those people make those calls or those contacts can really, you know, help drive, drive you know, good numbers at your event. Yeah, because we can get all the kids we want in there, but unfortunately the kids uh... – you know, they don't have any control over their, their time or resources or money or, you know, they can't they can't drive themselves there. So, well, you know. I, I kind of like, you know, well, first of all, it makes me really happy, uh, Brian, that you say that you've noticed an incline or an increase, you know, in those youth days. That's awesome that it's going uphill. That makes me, you know, pretty happy. And, you know, another thing you said was a really good point that, you know, if kids experience something like this, you know, all they need is that maybe one experience and it's awesome and they have a great time and then they go to school like you were saying they you know they tell all their friends and all their buddies like hey you know like come to me with this this next weekend and I I think that's awesome because that's how kind of like Ben's talking about I think you get you know kids who weren't raised in a hunting household already involved into hunting and that's really the only way we're going to be able to increase our hunter numbers it really is it really is and I think there's so many uh, kids, and uh, I, I'm actually surprised, you know, at the number of adults as well, you know, that I've seen over, you know, the past six months that really want to get involved in it, and they just don't know how to get started, especially waterfowl hunting. Waterfowl hunting is not an easy sport to get into, even if you're an avid outdoors person, you know, fishing or deer hunting or whatnot. It's kind of dawning, you know, yeah. for people, yeah. you know, to, to figure out how to get started. So I, I think all of us, you know, as, as, as hunters and as conservationists, if, you know, we, we look at a big picture and the future, not only of duck hunting, but of waterfowl conservation really rests on the shoulders of us right now. And I think it's it's so important right now, you know, to get out and get those, you know, kids involved with the outdoors. Agreed. That's, in fact, that's why the Fowl Front Waterfowl Podcast exists. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's our main mission, really, is connect with youth and not even just youth, you know, non-hunters as well. Uh, you know, a lot of people can start hunting later in life. Um, you know, Brian, you've, you've touched on this a little bit, you know, throughout the show already but i would like to you know kind of ask you directly you know kind of give us a rundown like why should someone support delta waterfowl 
Uh, and I'll, I'll add in there, you know, one of the few things that I do dislike seeing sometimes in the hunting community is, you know, people will say, well, you should, you know, support DU instead or NWTF or Pheasants Forever. And, you know, I'm over here. I'm like, you know, why not support them all? And, uh, you know, I think a really common misconception is that they are completely separate entities when, you know, at least with my experience, they're not. And so, you know, I was wondering, you know, if you could maybe touch on, you know, why should we support Delta Waterfowl? Uh, what's the work that you guys do? And then as well, you know, kind of talk about your work alongside with maybe DU or U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or maybe even just state or local agencies. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think, you know, you kind of touched on a couple of really good points there. I think especially in today's day and age, uh, we really need to work together as a waterfowling community to ensure that we're going to have, you know, those opportunities to get out and waterfowl hunt. Plus, you know, we're going to have those, you know, that voice, um, that accumulated voice when, um, you know, like the farm bill, it just, you know, got out of the Senate Ag Committee right now. So, you know, to have that united voice as duck hunters, not only from Delta Waterfowl, but from some of the other organizations, whether they be national, local, or state organizations. So I think it's, you know, equally important to support all the organizations because, I mean, after all, we are working towards a common goal. Uh, and I do know that a lot of the organizations do work hand in hand, even though a particular their work may vary a little bit from organization to organization. They are working for a common goal. Um, one of the things with Delta Waterfowl, Delta Waterfowl is really committed to not only providing, um, you know, ensuring that we're going to have ample duck numbers, but Delta is really taking a active role and providing a voice for the duck hunter. Well, what, what does that mean? That's kind of easy to say. Well, number one, I just brought up with having that uh, voice in Washington when it comes to certain uh, measures, such as the, the Ag Farm Bill and having certain measures added to it. Delta Waterfowl had been working in North Dakota with uh, a program, a local program called Working Wetlands, and it's very similar to a CPRP program giving farmers incentives to leave those seasonal and temporary small wetlands, which really are the, they have the greatest positive impact on, you know, duck production, you know, in in the north area. So Delta was successful working with, you know, other organizations and whatnot of having that added to the farm bill. Um, you know, the other thing that they do for the voice of the duck hunter, for example, on the Atlantic Flyway, their U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is now trying to reduce the uh, mallard harvest from four daily to two daily. So what we're doing as an organization, we're working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and trying to provide some of the scientific data behind uh, why that decision may not be you know, the right decision and giving suggestions and whatnot, you know, working, you know, towards finding a happy medium that is is good for the duck hunters, but at the same time ensuring that we're going to have that abundant, you know, breeding population, that we're not going to negatively impact the breeding population. So, you know, and, and times there are local issues as well. 
uh, maybe decreased access to uh, a local, you know, state wildlife area, whatnot. So Delta really does try to, you know, provide an active role, you know, uh, both nationally um, and, you know, at the local level as well. So, you know, it, Delta, I think, has, you know, since its inception with its start, um, you know, the roots going back to 1911, has primarily been known as a research-based uh, organization and providing that research to other organizations, U.S. Fish and Wildlife and, you know, state agencies as well, you know, really where, you know, the term of waterfowl conservation really came from, you know, with Delta and being a research-based, you know, organization. And we're still committed to that research, um, you know, even today. But also couple with the fact that we're working a lot more on the policy issues that affects not only waterfowl production, but also perhaps, you know, opportunities for the duck hunter as well. And one of our biggest um, goals now is, to, um, as we've talked, you know, for, for a little while now, is, you know, providing those opportunities for the first time hunters to get a field. So, you know, Delta really works in a lot of different facets, but, um, you know, again, I think that all the organizations are working towards the same goal. And, you know, I've been a member, you know, of Delta and other waterfowl conservation organizations, both, you know, and I think they should try to support all those organizations as well. I think that's the biggest travesty about it all is, is that people – think you ought to choose or pick and whatnot and i think you know if you're if you care that much about it um to be choosing and picking you know which one it is why don't you you know care a little bit more uh and <laughs> donate to both you know <laughs> one of those things like if you care that much go ahead and put your money where your mouth is in in a lot of times too i think we always think of um you know committing to an organization as you know, financially, and obviously that's what keeps this the work that these organizations like Delta, you know, moving forward. But also, I think one of the uh, the most important things about you know Delta Waterfowl is we are a volunteer based organization, and you cannot discount how important volunteers are to our organization, not only from uh, a fundraising perspective. But, you know, the, the, the volunteers uh, spend these, you know, countless hours, you know, working on these local projects and are so dedicated to it. So even, you know, in terms, you know, some people may not, you know, it may not be financially feasible for them to do everything, you know. And to those people, I would say if, if you really believe in one or a few hours every year, and, and it's it's amazing. I guess what I would say to the people that, you know, may not financially be able to donate to several organizations is, you know, think think seriously about, you know, becoming a volunteer of one of those organizations like Delta. I mean, that's what keeps these organizations going is all the hard work that the volunteers put in, not only from a fundraising perspective, but working with those local nest structure projects, uh, putting on a youth hunt, uh, putting on a youth field day. So, I mean, the volunteers really are the backbone of Delta Waterfowl, and, I mean, they're just so important to us. 
it, it's amazing. Uh, the first time I went up in, you know, to Bismarck to uh, Delta's headquarters, you know, there's a room in there that's just filled with all the research, you know, that's taken place since uh, Delta's inception. And it's incredible the volumes and volumes of uh, of research that, that have been done. And, you know, essentially the the people, uh, James Ford Bell, you know, that started, you know, based Delta was it was out of concern. We saw the decline of waterfall numbers and he actually brought in uh, Aldo Leopold to, you know, help him you know, address that situation with the declining, you know, duck numbers. So, you know, conservation's gone back a long, long time, but, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing how much has been done since then. And it's amazing how, you know, technology has improved, you know, the efficiency of waterfowl conservation. And I think now, you know, we're, we're taking it you know, to another level, not only of waterfowl conservation, but, you know, looking at the bigger picture of, you know, creating those opportunities for, you know, duck hunters and, you know, youth hunters that we've talked about. So, you know, the organization has really grown and it's evolved over the years as well, you know, to start addressing some of, some of these issues as they occur. And we really do. We do a lot of surveys with the volunteers and with the membership to make sure that as an organization, we really are providing or attempting to provide the solutions that our membership is looking for. You know, and it's just, you know, from those people that, you know, the, the early, you know, days of, you know, not only waterfowl conservation, but conservation in general, you know, came out of, you know, concern and whatnot. And I think, you know, we have so many pressures being put on us in our daily lives that, uh, you know, obviously none of us really have to hunt in today's day and age, you know, to provide sustenance for our family. But we do it because we truly love the outdoors and, and, and being out there enjoying, enjoying, uh, nature's finest. But, uh, you know, it's it's really important that everyone, whether it's financial or, you know, volunteering, putting some time in to really ensure that, you know, it's there for our, you know, our children, for their children, for future generations. Yeah, you know, Brian, you made a really good point there. You said, you know, this day and age, we don't have to hunt to feed our family anymore, you know, realistically. And, you know, that's... I'm glad you said it because the other thing I wanted to kind of backtrack on and talk a little bit about uh, with Delta's work is a piece of work that I think a lot of people look past because when they think of Delta waterfowl, they think of, you know, probably a little bit more habitat management and, you know, hunters' rights as far as like public hunting, but I don't think they truly realize the battle that we, you know, sometimes face uphill on Capitol Hill. And, you know, you mentioned the farm bill and some of those other bills that go through Senate. And I think it's important for our listeners to know, you know, hunting isn't a right at this point, you know, in this country. It's something that we are fighting for. And so, you know, I think that's awesome that Delta takes a stand, you know, at a really high level and speaks for all of us, you know, here at home that enjoy this great passion and this great hobby. I'm just glad somebody's up there talking to politicians so that I don't have to really um, because, you know, I don't really have the, oh, I patience or like, I guess 
maybe knowledge and intelligence for that kind of thing, you know. Um, <laughs> but I sure am glad someone someone's out there speaking on my behalf um, uh, in that regard. It, it, it really is amazing how much is going on behind the scenes. And, you know, you truly do need in today's day and age, you know, someone to be out there as a voice and, you know, the person that – uh, in from Delta headquarters in Bismarck, uh, who's in charge of that is uh, John Devney, and John works tirelessly for uh, Delta Waterfowl for their membership and for waterfowlers in general. And you know, one of the things there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. For example, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, just announced that uh, they have expanded hunting access to national wildlife refuges all over the country by the tune of over 200,000 acres total, you know, from the entire country. So those are the things that, you know, Delta sees that one of the biggest barriers for duck hunting is access. And so we're really trying to be out there to try to help, you know, the duck hunters with access to, you know, these public lands and whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're so fortunate as an organization for waterfowlers in general to have someone like John Devney working, you know, tirelessly for us. And it's amazing what's going on behind the scenes. Um, I think in today's day and age, we can get a little jaded about things and, you know, we, you know, sometimes the media tends to focus on some of the negative things that are going on around the world. Um, there's so many positive things that are going on right now. And a lot of people don't know about it, that it's occurring. And, you know, I, I just, I think, you know, more than ever, we really need to, you know, work as a community, you know, waterfowl hunters to, you know, I've said it probably 10 times already, you know, to really ensure that there is a future for waterfowl hunting. For sure, for sure. You, you know, you're talking about the the limit of land, and I just, I think that's funny because, you know, the other day a guy made a comment to me about how, you know, it, he said he said he doesn't think that, you know, maybe duck hunter numbers are quite as bad as people say because there seems to be a ton of duck hunters out there. But, you know, I think maybe it's just because there's limited land. There, It seems like there's so many hunters because you might have 20 hunters on every single public pool. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's some truth to that, you know, as public areas are getting, you know, perhaps more pressured just because people have limited access, you know, to private lands and whatnot, um, you know. I do know one of the, when I moved to Illinois about 17 years ago, I met quite a few people and, you know, through my local chapters and when I started volunteering at my local chapters. And so I think the more active you are in not only waterfowl hunting, but conservation and getting involved, I think, you know, a lot of those opportunities do happen. They do occur you know, as, as getting involved. But I think you're right to a certain extent. I think, you know, some of those areas are more pressure. And, you know, frankly, you know, just as well as I do, there are certain areas that tend to produce, you know, more ducks, you know, than others. And so I think, you know, in today's day and age of, you know, social media and whatnot, 
unfortunately, you know, sometimes the word gets out and then all of a sudden, it, you know, those particular areas that are high producing areas tend to get a little bit more crowded, you know, than some of the other areas as well. But yeah, um, I've always thought of it kind of as the evolution of your, your waterfowling, you know, hunting. Everybody starts on public land. That's and that's perfectly you know that's exactly what it's there for and then you know everybody hunts a little bit of public land each year but I almost look at it kind of you know as you you know evolve as a hunter you know you got to try to you know reclaim some of that private ground and you know for habitat and hunting opportunity through permissions and networking with people and educating them uh, about the benefits of um, having waterfowl habitat and having people hunt waterfowl on your property. So, you know, Ben, you, you just said networking and that's one thing, you know, I noticed Brian, you said that you started meeting some people, you know, Hey, for you listeners out there, you know, what better place to meet a future long-term hunting friend and partner and maybe share some spots with somebody than at a local event like Delta, you know, working together with like-minded people with a common conservation goal. Uh, you know, I've met, friends that I think I'm probably going to be lifelong friends with now at such events. And, you know, again, what better place to do it? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, there's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, just getting involved in, you know, in today's day and age, again, with social media, you know, you hear about so many projects going on and, and, and events you know, just going out there, introducing yourself, uh, you, you see these banding projects going on, you know, what a, what a great opportunity to go out and meet, you know, like-minded people and, you know, kind of network. And, you know, some of the people that I met when I first moved here to Illinois 17 years ago, I'm still really good friends with, and we still hunt a lot together. So, you know, it's a, it's a great opportunity. All right. So Brian, you grew up in New York and then you lived in California for eight years, and now you said you've been in Illinois for 17? Yes. Man, I mean, well, <laughs> tell us about your hunting experiences. I mean, that's crazy. Three out of the four flyways, you know, all over the country. I mean, what's some of the coolest places you've hunted? What's some of your experiences? I mean, just tell us about, I mean, that moving around. That's, I mean, that's got to be pretty cool, right? It's been great. You know, I feel really fortunate. I grew up on the St. Lawrence River in upstate New York, and that was an area that was just renowned for waterfowl hunting, the history and the the, the people that grew up there with a, a decoy carving, you know, uh, was, was a hotbed of decoy carvers back in the day. Uh, and then, you know, just experiencing some of the different, you know, waterfowl that migrated through that area. And I, I don't think a lot of people, and I didn't at the time, realize um, what a huge state California, especially Northern California, is to waterfowl hunting. It's just incredible. And if you've never, you know, I can remember going up into the Klamath Basin, you know, when we first moved out there and just seeing the millions of ducks and geese that were migrating through that area. And then, you know, the rice the rice, uh, you know, fields and, you know, Sacramento Valley, it's just, it's just incredible out there. But Well, there's a know, reason the Pacific Flyway has a seven duck limit, right? Yeah, yeah, and in a 107-day season, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it's just incredible the amount of birds, you know, that are coming through that flyway. 
and, you know, the variety of ducks and geese that you have out there as well. Um, you know, and then being here in, in, in northern Illinois, we have quite a variety of um, waterfowl hunting experiences as well. When I first moved here, you know, I used to go up to Horkon Marsh, you know, um, which is only a little over an hour away. And, I mean, the, the rich history of waterfowl hunting there and the Mississippi River and, you know, the, 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 the goose hunting in Illinois is just renowned. Um, so it's, it's, I've been really fortunate, you know, to experience, like you said, you know, some of the different flyways and met a lot of great people, you know, in all three flyways and consider some, you know, even though I might not live there, some have some great friends still on those flyways and just an incredible experience. I'm really fortunate. I, I am. But, you know, the thing is that I don't think people realize now we've had a stretch of eight or ten years now where we've had such great waterfowl numbers, you know, and I think back to when I was in high school, you know, the 30-day seasons, the three-duck limits, and, you know, back then, I mean, we really are, and I tell this to my son all the time, I said, you know, to my son Ben, these are the good old days right now. I mean, we're really fortunate. We've been on a a run here with very liberal seasons and, and bag limits, you know, for quite some time and, and good numbers of waterfowl in the air. So, you know, it is important to really enjoy it now and, you know, don't take it for granted, you know, um, you know. Right. I was just on a fishing trip with my grandpa and, you know, I asked him, you know, hey, why didn't we go duck hunting more often um, when I was younger? And we did intermittently, I, I you know. We're fortunate right now. Yeah. And he just told me, he he said, well, there weren't any ducks. And I said, oh, that's that. You know, there were less ducks and there were just less opportunities. I I know, you know, listening to some old timers talk, it it truly wasn't on a large scale that long ago when there was the point system and like 30-day long seasons. And, you know, you, you hate to see people take what we have right now for granted because it could definitely be a lot worse. Oh, there's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, for me personally, you know, you know, the days of the, you know, the the big bags have aren't nearly as important as just, you know, the experience of getting out and, you know, sharing it with other people and and really enjoying what we have right now. I mean, we're really fortunate. You know, it wasn't even that many years ago where, you know, our canvas back season was closed. Mm. And, you know, for the past few years, seasons here, we've been able, you know, to harvest two canvas backs a day. I mean, we really are fortunate to what we have going on right now. Yeah, kind of a, a nerdy little moment that I had right here is was like, yeah, you know, waterfowl trends, they go up and down with, you know, um, well, for every variable, environmental variable that there is. And I don't know if you're a Game of Thrones fan or anything like that, but like, we're summer babies, you know, we were born during the good times and, you know, people, you know, the, the older folks are not calling you an older folk, Brian, <laughs> uh, but you know, the more seasoned, the more seasoned waterfowl hunters, you know, keep telling us, you know, winter's coming, you know, like bad times can be ahead they, they're you know, you're not, you're never assured a, uh, a good, you know, year. Well, you're not. I mean, and, and we think about it, you know, from just the perspective of the duck hunter all the time. Well, think about the duck. 
I mean, there's there's more pressure, you know, as, especially now commodity prices have been dropping. So there's more pressure on the farmer to make the best use out of their land, you know, land. Ninety percent of the ducks that are raised are raised on private land. Ninety yeah. percent yeah. are raised on private land. So well, they say in know, 2050 we're going to have to produce twice the amount of you know food and agriculture on the same amount of you know acres. That's right, and you know we look at the you know the pressures, the financial pressures of the farmers, and you know if they have an area that's a seasonal or temporary wetland, you know that it's. It's tempting for them, you know, to tow it under, to run, you know, field lines through it and, and whatnot. And then you think about some of the other factors as well to the ducks. You know, predator management is huge right now. You know, uh, fur prices aren't quite what they used to be. So, you know, you have so many more predators out there and you have some predators like such as the raccoon that weren't naturally in certain areas, you know, that are in prime, you know, duck breeding areas. And, you know, Delta has long been a proponent, you know, predator management, and we actively, you know, take part in that. And we actively in those high production areas, you know, utilize trappers, you know, to ensure that they are producing, you know, good brood numbers out of those areas because, you know, to maintain, you know, that stable population of, you know, ducks, you need about a 12% success rate. Well, in some of those areas of high predation and, you know, low areas of, you know, seasonal and temporary wetlands, we're not going to meet those thresholds. So we really have to work hard, you know, as waterfowl hunters and conservationists to ensure that, you know, the ducks, the ducklings have a fighting chance. Yeah, you know, you brought up a really good point. You say, you know, we we think about ourselves, obviously, but, you know, like you said, what about the duck? And, you know, the predator management is a very good example. Uh, I think a lot of people don't truly understand how hard it is for some of these wild animals, uh, particularly, you know, migratory birds, to be successful. I mean, you know, water shortage is obviously a huge thing that people think about, but you mean you need the food. Uh, you need the cover and the protection, and I think that's one of the things, you know, I've been following that Delta uh, project with the trapping in the Dakotas for a while now, and, you know, I love reading all the updates and seeing all the videos online, and, you know, again, I just, I think that people don't truly understand that, hey, you know, there's a lot of pressure on these birds to be successful, and, you know, for a lot of people that maybe aren't too familiar with statistics or any kind of uh, analytics, you know, a 12% success rate, 12%, that's a pretty high number when you're, you know, looking at percentages. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, there's so many things that we can do, you know, to help them not only achieve those numbers, but, uh, you know, surpass those numbers. You know, one of the things that, you know, Delta, you know, has really been a proponent of, and a lot of the research, you know, um, has shown, you know, hen houses, for example, the nesting tubes uh, make it so much, uh, the brood so much more successful just because they're not um, as immediately available to predators or predation on their on their nests, you know, when they're nesting in the upland habitats and whatnot. Because you think about, you don't have these large tracts of grasslands anymore. There may be, you know, very small strips around these seasonal and temporary wetlands. Just because we have the seasonal and temporary wetlands doesn't naturally mean that we're going to have, you know, success on those wetlands. So, 
you know, utilizing predator management, utilizing the hen houses. You know, it's 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 astonishing some of the the numbers that have, you know, success numbers uh, percentages that have been achieved by utilizing those two tactics. You know, together. Uh, so you know, we kind of. I know that's that's one of the things that really you know intrigued me about Delta and really brought me you know to you know seek out a position with Delta is yes we have to look at you know the national um, you know perspective you know for waterfowl just because they're a migratory you know uh, uh, bird I mean but at the same time we can still do things on the local level you know, to help impact those, you know, positively help impact those duck numbers and, you know, to get more people involved in the sport. So, yeah, there's a lot of interesting work going on right now. Uh, one of the things they're doing now is, you know, for the overwater nesters like canisbacks and redheads, uh, which are notoriously hard to research because, I mean, physically, you have to get out there with a pair of waders and find those nets. So one of the things that they're doing now is they're actually using drones with uh, infrared uh, technology to actually locate those nest sites so we can start doing more accurate research on those overwater nesters such as your canisbacks and your redheads. I mean, it's just it's just amazing some of the work that's going on right now. Yeah, you know, a couple things. One, you know, the, the drones, like you were saying earlier, sometimes we get wrapped up uh, in some of this common age stuff, and I totally agree. I think, you know, social media particularly, you know, has its ups and its downs, uh, but I think, you know, having an optimistic outlook on it, you know, the drones are a good thing in a common era. You know, some of those surveys that they can go over – and, uh, the, you know, maybe the better accuracy in some of the bird count numbers. And then, like you were saying, with the redhead and canvasback nest out in the water, you know, when you don't have to get men out there, you know, maybe you might have a little more accuracy. It might be a little bit easier. Uh, heck, it might even be a little cheaper. So, you know, look at things positively, listeners. <laughs> yeah, okay, question for you, though, um, for both of you. Um, paint me ignorant here, and this is a great learning opportunity, I think. What is an... What is an overwater nester? Well, for go ahead. Well, typically when we think of duck broods, we think of you know mallards and they're nesting in a, a grass nest in an upland environment on dry land. Okay, right. Or say a wood duck's in a in a box, you know, um, or a nesting cavity in a tree. Well, when those when those ducklings hatch, say from you know the the puddle duck nest, you know your mallards, your pintails, your teal, your gadwalls, and so on and so forth, the you know the brood's going to hatch, and then within a short period of time, they're going to travel to water. Whereas an overwater nester like a canisback, what they'll do is say on the edge of the reeds, they'll actually build a nest, and that nest will be over water. Okay. okay, so they'll build that structure within, you know, the surrounding vegetation and whatnot. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a lot of, you know, it's just, you think about it. So if we want to study, okay, um, how predation affects the canvasback numbers, well, you have to physically get out there and find those nests first before we can study them. And that's really labor-intensive. You know, in an upland scenario, you know, there's 
proven, very efficient method to finding those nests. But for an overwater nester, you think about the labor involved. And, you know, as a waterfowl hunter, some of those areas are a little silty. And it's so, you know, utilizing technology to make, you know, the research, you know, on those particular birds so much more efficient. It's, it's, it's amazing how much more efficient. And once you locate where those nests are, then you can pinpoint and then, you know, send, you know, people out there to do counts and, to, you know, track, you know, the success rates and, and, and some of the things that they're currently doing to research, you know, those, those, those populations of your divers. Yeah, I'm sure those people that are trudging through that water and their waders are, I'm sure they appreciate the uh, accuracy of those given nests. Yeah, I would imagine. I would imagine <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, hey, Brian, so the first time that uh, I actually met you was in Illinois. We were out there banding some lesser scop and some canvas back out there at Kibbe Station, which uh, was actually my first experience banding ducks. And I mean, talk about an amazing spring break. Uh, but besides the ducks and the banding, one of the things that just really captured my attention was you and Pat Gregory's uh, decoy carvings. And uh, you talked on, you know, you touched on this a little bit earlier. You said growing up around the St. Lawrence River that, you know, decoy carving was kind of a tradition around there. And, you know, uh, I was just wondering maybe talk about some of your decoy carving and, you know, how you got into it. And, you know, I, I noticed that you primarily do some divers uh, with your carving. So, I mean, talk about that a little bit. Sure, sure. Well, growing up in that area, having a rich history of, you know, decoy carving, I, I essentially got into it just for practical reasons to actually use the decoys that I was carving, you know, and trying to build, you know, a decent rig. Uh, I carved, you know, kind of with a mentor up there that helped me get started and whatnot. So I carved through high school and then a couple of years into college and then, you know, post-college, you know, starting a family and job. Uh, you know, the career, I basically put it aside for almost 20 years. I didn't carve at all. And I took it back up again about seven years ago. And again, it was for practical reasons. I wanted to hunt some of the decoys, you know, that I carved. I mean, there's a lot of satisfaction that comes out of, you know, hunting over your own decoys. So, um, you know... I'll be honest with you, the reason why I probably carved divers, it's, it's how I got started with duck hunting. We still do a lot of puddle duck hunting, a lot of goose hunting, you know, out in the fields and some of the local areas around here. But I really enjoy diver hunting, and I really like, you know, carving those, those um, you know, those decoys to use when, when we do diver hunt. And we do quite a bit of diver hunting as well, you know, in the fall, so... Yeah, I I still, you know, I do donate some decoys, you know, the various organizations and among one Delta and I have, you know, for several years now. But uh we we do hunt quite a few of the decoys that I make. That, that's awesome. Um, cuz like you said, um there's something to be said about hunting over a, a decoy that you've spent some time on. Um, you know, I I can just attest to it through just painting and um, you know, rigging and all that stuff, but, um, that's really practical. Um, especially if, if weight really, I, I mean, I don't know what one of your decoys weighs, one of your gunner decoys weighs, but, um, 
you know, that's something that I know me and Tegan have been talking about the last couple of weeks is um, trying to, you know, try our hand at carving some some duck decoys. And um, <laughs> I mean, because you can either you can go out and buy them and paint them or you can go out and, you know, buy garage sale decoys and, and paint or flock those things up. But there's got to be something about taking raw material from the earth and uh, turning it into a, a, a something to trick another raw material uh, from the earth and onto your dinner plate. So yeah. it, it really is. And, and not only that, you, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great hobby slash pastime, whatever you want to call it, uh, to do in the off season. I mean, during duck season, I don't touch a decoy. I don't carve. I don't paint. Uh, I'm, duck hunting when i have free time i'm out duck hunting but you know soon season closes down or we're not you know we're not traveling any longer uh i get right back after it and i i do it um as as much as i can you know in my spare time it, it it's a fun way um to kind of keep you know this this serious addiction that we call waterfowl hunting going year yeah. round yeah, it re- it yeah, really that's one is. Of the to- yeah, that's one of the things I wanted to touch on was, I mean, that's surely, that's got to be a pretty fun activity to keep you involved because, you know, as they say, duck depression, uh, it's a real thing. And so outside of season, you know, what are you going to do to stay involved? And I mean, I imagine, as you said, that that's a pretty good hobby to get into to keep you tuned in. Plus, it would be nice to have a set of decoys that I could like hang on the wall instead of, you know, no one wants to see my 1995 flambeau plastic beat up <laughs> mallard decoy <laughs> but uh you know you touch those things that you know it'd be you know i'm looking around at my office right now that we're recording in and you know i've got i've got a little bit of taxidermy but nothing you know no, no cool artwork like that and that's that's exactly what decoys are they're artwork or they should be it's fun. I mean, there's so much history in it as well, and I think it really connects you to the history of waterfowling as well. Um, you know, until late, you know, plastic decoys didn't exist, you know. Uh, right. And, and, you know, people relied on uh, their their own skill and their own work, you know, to produce a rig. And I think there's something to be said just connecting with that history of waterfowl hunting. And, you know, it's, it's great. You know, I, as, as I've been doing that, you know, to retire some of the birds, some of the, you know, decoys out of my rig and put them aside for my son. And, you know, uh, there are times, you know, where I've, you know, given decoys to family members or really close friends at times, you know, just to have that connection, you know, with, with not only the support, but the sport itself, but with, you know, the people that you enjoy it with. Well, it's a, it's a sport all in itself too, isn't it? Well, you know, I, I guess probably what you're referring to are some of the shows and whatnot. It's, you know, again, I mean, there are people that you know carve, you know, just for shows, like more on a decorative level. Or again, it's kind of a the way I look at those shows is it's kind of a, a, a means to you know pass the off season as well. You know, some people that get out and train and work with their dogs. They choose, you know, in the off-season maybe to participate in hunt tests and, you know, get out with like-minded people. And, you know, I think the decoy carvers as a whole, we do that as well. We go to the different, you know, shows, you know, around the country and get together and, 
you know, swap stories about duck hunting and about carving and whatnot. So, you know, we're pretty, pretty, you know, all like-minded individuals that, you know, we've gotten crazy over a duck at a very young age and, uh, you know, it's really taken off from there. You know, that's one of my favorite things about duck hunting. You know, I grew up uh, deer and turkey hunting were actually some of my first experiences, but one of the main things that really grasped me with duck hunting was the camaraderie and, you know, what you're talking about there with the uh, the humility of some of those decoy carvers like yourself. I mean, that's awesome that, you know, you can make, you know, an award-winning decoy and then pass it off to somebody just because you, you want to show them a great time and, you know, talk about a selfless act and, again, just being humble. Uh, you know, that's amazing to me. And, uh, you know, you, you touched there on, you know, some guys do compete and, you know, not to uh, put you on the spot or anything, but uh, Brian here actually did just recently win the world championship uh, for Gunner Pairs division in decoy carving. And I wanted to see, Brian, if maybe you want to talk about that a little bit or maybe even some of your other accolades in decoy carving. Uh, I must have gotten lucky. Yeah, I, yeah that's all I can say. Um, you know, I, I, I really... I really enjoyed the carve, you know, more so for the, you know, the actual utilitarian, you know, purpose of taking it out and hunting and, you know, to be able, to, I feel very humbled and honored to have won that. But, uh, you know, again, I, I really, you know, I, I truly do it, you know, to, you know, for the decoys to get out and use. I mean, that's, for me, there's, there's nothing, you know, better than that, you know, to have, you know, ducks, you know, tolling into your, you know, the decoys that you carved. And, uh, I know you mentioned Pat Gregory, Pat Gre- Gregory, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of, you know, decoys he has. I'm not as a, a prolific carver as him. I don't put out as many blocks a year as Pat does. I wish I could, <laughs> but I don't, you know, but, uh, yeah, we're slowly building a rig and yeah, I enjoy it. And the, and the shows are fun. I'm not taking anything away from the shows again. I'm, I'm just humbled and honored, you know, to be able to, you know, to have, you know, um, one at the worlds, you know, this year, but, uh, there, there's so many great decoy carvers out there and so many talented carvers. It's, 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 it's amazing. And it's kind of a, a smaller, tight-knit community, but it, it's amazing how um, those carvers are, you know, again, most of them waterfowl hunters are, you know, really try to welcome people into the fold and teach them, you know, how to carve and really welcoming, you know, those new carvers as well. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Absolutely. I, th- I think you said there's a tight-knit community, and that, that's really cool. Uh, I got a real big kick uh, when we were up there at Kibbe around – you know, one of those lunch tables, there was you and Pat, and then there's another gentleman there that was carving. I can't for the life of me remember his name, but you guys were kind of sharing. Uh, that was Jeff Vine from Wisconsin. Je- that's right. Je- yep, yep. But anyway, anyhow, you guys were you were sharing, like, techniques and different carves, and you guys were passing each other's decoys around to each other, and I was like, man, that that's cool. You know, another great example of the camaraderie of duck hunting. Yeah. It really is. It really is. That's why I enjoy carving so much. I really do. Well, uh, what would your advice be? Well, how's your decoy coming along? <laughs> well, uh, funny story. I was, I mean, I was pretty darn excited to get down there and uh, get down to the farm and knock her out and get started. And 
like two days before I went down there, uh, the bandsaw, I guess the blade on it snapped. And we have since not ordered another one. And I was real tempted to try and uh, finagle a decoy body out of that cork anyhow. And I was like, no, you know, I need to go ahead and do it right and wait to get another blade because last thing I want to do is start hacking away with a knife, <laughs> you know, uh, come out with a frog or something. All good well, hey, Brad, patience is patience is key with carving decoys. Oh, I I can only imagine you you can take away, but you can't add, right? That's right. That's right. Well, hey Brian, if you were going to give uh, someone some advice that really wanted to get into decoy carving, I mean, where would you direct them to? You know, there there are a couple really good pages uh, on Facebook. Uh, you know, there's a, a decoy carving forum. There's another one called decoy nuts. And the, there are a lot of good carvers and a lot of knowledgeable carvers on both of those Facebook pages. Um, there are a couple, you know, they can really direct you, uh, you know, to the, to the right people. You know, the, the one thing that I would suggest is, you know, if someone's really interested in decoy carving, is try to find someone local that does carve. Uh, you know, sometimes it's really difficult to do things over the phone and, you know, walk someone through it where it's really easy or it's easier, you know, to show them, you know, hands-on. So a lot of times you can, you know, try to connect with people on, on some of those pages or, you know, going online and just, you know, looking for a show within your area, even if you have to drive a couple hours and just get out there and just start meeting some people and, uh, you know, trying to hook up with somebody local. There's actually a lot more people, you know, that are out there carving than we, you know, probably even know. But, uh, you know, having that real hands-on help assistance, you know, it, 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 it goes such a long way. Yeah, you know, I'm definitely a physical learner. And so uh, that makes total sense, you know, trying to find someone local that can actually show you how to do it instead of trying to, you know, maybe just 100% go off of a YouTube video or a phone conversation, as you were saying. I've got, a, I've got the most important question here. So, okay. You only get to go on one more waterfowl hunt or one more hunt uh, in your life. Uh, where are you going? When are you going? Who are you going with? And what are you guys targeting? And, and what's the weather like? Hmm. Well, it's a hard one when you've had the variety that you've had. <laughs> yeah, that is a tough one. That is a tough one. Well, I'm definitely, uh, if I can have, you know, a few individuals with me, and definitely my son would be right there with me and my dad. I uh, definitely have to have them along. I would probably be on the Mississippi River. Uh, we would be going after camasbacks. And, uh, It'd be cold, clear. I, I see a northwest wind and uh, just a, a real biting cold day after Camas backs when everything, when the river's starting to ice up. Uh, that's, those are the special days for me. Um, you know, we don't get to experience that every season, but when we do, it's a really special day. Yeah. Yeah, you, you just painted a picture for me that, Made me kind of sad that it's not even July yet. Because it's 90 degrees out today. (laughs) (laughs) I would take that nail-biting windshield right now. We can dream, though. We can dream. (laughs) That's Uh, right. 
That's what you have the photo album for, just to reminisce and cry yourself to sleep. I swear that's why that's why we started the podcast, just so that... Keep like it going. You, yeah, like you were talking, you know, like you said, everybody's got to have their off-season fix, as it were. Can't get the real stuff, got to get the, you know... Nice. Well, Brian, what kind of what kind of gun do you shoot? I actually uh, I shoot a Benelli M2. I'm just shooting three inch. I haven't gone in the three and a half yet. It's taken me a while even to go to a semi. So uh, small baby oh, yeah. steps for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, those three and a half inches they're expensive, anyways. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We uh, we just recorded. The, I don't need the kick either. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's uh, maybe did that. I'm sure did that kick maybe help your transition into the semi-auto. Yeah, I real yeah, I I, I actually uh my dad uh gave me that uh uh Benelli and uh yeah, it's been a great gun. I, I love that gun. I guess just I got uh really one more question for you. I I just kind of wanted to touch on, you know, you know, we've been talking about the the rich history of of decoy carving and all that stuff um and you touched a little bit about it earlier, but do you remember your your first hunt or like do you remember when it clicked for you, um, like, yep. <laughs> oh, it it was my. Oh, I remember it like yesterday. It was my first hunt. Uh, we were on the St. Lawrence River, uh, opening day of duck season. Um, nice, cool morning in a cattail marsh. Uh, there were two of my friends and I, uh, and their dad, um, and in that cattail marsh, and my first duck. It was a, a mallard hen. I remember I actually shot it with a borrowed uh, Model 12, and uh, I'll never forget that as long as I live. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it's amazing the things that we forget over the years, but then how vivid one, you know, moment in our lives can be. And yeah, to, I mean, uh, the, for me, you know, just seeing. You know the duck zipping around, laying in the decoys before shooting time, and you know that that first connection with the duck, and then you know uh, going back, cleaning the birds, and you know having the birds for dinner. I mean, I mean that 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 lasts so, a lifetime. I used to be so annoyed by oh man, all the ducks are buzzing around before shooting light, and then you know come shooting light, you know. Uh, but uh, I can honestly say this season I was not like. That was my favorite part of the the day. Just enjoying the ducks, being there quiet. No one knows you're there. You have not yet disrupted nature, um, and uh, yeah, I, I love that. You know, and you paint such a vivid picture, and that, that's how that's how I know that it's it's so um, important to you that that day in your life. And uh, if anybody you know is listening out there and has maybe they've they've had you know one or two or maybe even three waterfowl seasons underneath their belt. Uh, but perhaps you're listening to this and you've never even been out. You're just, you're dabbling in it. What, what do you have, um, to say, uh, to that person, Brian? You know, again, I think, uh, you know, for that person that would really get, like to get out, even if it's just, you know, you may not at this point in time feel comfortable, you know, with firearms and, you know, so getting out there, uh, hunter recruitment programs. There are a lot of workshops that these, you know, these organizations, these states put on with the assistance of some of the conservation organizations. Um, you know, just getting out there and meeting people, getting comfortable, you know, with the shotgun, getting out and, you know, shooting clays and, 
you know, getting more comfortable with the identification of, you know, the ducks. And, you know, most important, get involved, you know, get out there, find a local chapter, uh, you know, meet some people. And, you know, once you get out and, you know, I think you really touched on it there a minute ago, just starting to experience some of the things. You know, the actual take is, is, is great, and we all enjoy that and enjoying a really nice, you know, duck dinner with that. But, you know, just some of the other things that you take in during the day, you know, seeing the eagles late in the season, you know, uh, you know, the swans flying through, just, you know, just to experience it all, taking in that sunrise with your friends with a cup of coffee, uh, or, or your son or daughter. I mean, it's, you know, it's a closeness that it, it seems to be that we don't get to experience enough in today's day and age, you know, you know, leave the phones in the boat or, or, or leave them on silent, you know, really take it in and, and get to enjoy it because, uh, you know, life's too short. Gotta get out and enjoy yeah. it. Brian, I think that's like maybe the fourth or fifth time during this uh, interview that you've painted like such a picture to me that like my heart is like, or my like stomach dropping. And I just like, I'm looking up and like, Picturing, you know, what, you know, these cattails, you know. That's the um, artist. The, the and and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's, I'm like homesick for duck season right now. So it won't be long now. It won't be too much longer. Yeah, one thing, I'm going to go back here a little bit, Brian. You, you said your first duck hunt, it was actually a buddy's dad that was with you and your friends? Yes. You know, that's, there you go, listeners, a perfect example. You know, look at, I mean, <laughs> talk about somebody who had some kids who grew up around hunting or waterfowl hunting in particular and. You know, they brought some friends out, and I mean, that's crazy. What you know? What a better story for some of you listeners to get out there and try to get some more youth involved. And you know, look at you now, Brian. Your your entire life is waterfowl, and you know, you were invited by a friend and his dad. That's awesome. Yeah, it it, it really is. I mean, you know, without that uh, that opportunity, and you know, what's really funny about it? I mentioned earlier that my dad was primarily a deer hunter and fisherman, and now later in life. I take him duck hunting all the time when he he comes into town. He and his one of his really close friends they usually come into town for four or five days, and we duck hunt during that time. So uh, it's kind of come full circle where I've you know I take him out and I've kind of gotten him involved in waterfowl hunting. So it's it's funny life life takes you on funny journeys. You just have to enjoy it. That's the, I have the same story. My dad, you know, he was big into upland hunting. We had German short hair pointer. Um, and that's primarily what I cut my teeth on in the hunting world. Um, and then a little bit of deer hunting he did here and there. And then, um, like he's super into turkey hunting and, um, I am getting him into waterfowl. Um, and he's, we went, he went on his first uh, pit blind field goose hunt with my buddy Clint. Um, Clint's a listener, um, and uh, oh, when my dad had fifty geese in his face, I I don't even know if he pulled the trigger. I don't I don't know, but um, I just it's like seeing my dad be twelve years old again. Like you know, it is great. Oh, it is. Yeah, that's priceless. Yeah, that's priceless. Yeah. Well, hey Brian, we really appreciate you coming on the show and. Uh, I think the listeners are going to enjoy this one. I think it's been a pretty good episode. Uh, and for you listeners out there, you know, go support Delta. Uh, maybe even go check out some decoy carving. Look into getting into a new hobby. And, you know, we already spend enough money on this sport. Might as well dabble in a little more. Maybe it'll even save you some money in the long run. 
but you know I think the biggest takeaway from this episode is definitely get involved with those local chapters and you know go meet some friends and make some wood duck boxes and you know Brian you got so many more last minute words of wisdom hey I appreciate you guys having me on and you know like I said earlier I mean it really is the good old days right now so I mean now's the prime time if you've been thinking about getting involved to get out there uh, you know, join a local Delta chapter, uh, get out in the field, um, you know, take kid hunting, uh, and enjoy it, uh, you know, right now, because we, we really are fortunate to, you know, be in a, in a fantastic area, era for waterfowl hunting. So, you know, get outdoors and, uh, get involved. All right, Brian. Hey, thank you very much. Have a good day. Thanks guys. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you take so care, much. Brian. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast. Please come join us on our Facebook group, the Foul Front Waterfowl Podcast group, where you can connect with a good group of hunters because we're all in this together. We need to act like it so that hopefully our great-great-grandkids will be hunting ducks over our favorite public lands. Uh, We also ask that you go ahead and give us a written review on iTunes and give us five stars if you think we deserve it. And we really do want to hear back from you uh, so that we can give you the best possible content. And if you get in on that Facebook group, you can get in there and you can ask questions and you can tell us what you want to hear next or you can tell us uh, what you don't like. And we'll be sure to tailor things to our listeners. So, all right. Stay safe out there and we will see you next week. Hey, you ever been sitting in front of your TV just wondering why you can't catch the latest episode of The Foul Front right there in your living room so you can press all your guests and family with your fine taste and podcast listening? Me neither, but hey, as a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, you can now find The Foul Front and some other great podcasts on your Apple TV, your Roku, your Amazon Fire Stick, Smart TV, even your gaming console just by downloading the Waypoint app. And heck, while you're there, they got over 2,500 hunting and fishing shows on demand. Go download the Waypoint app today.